Support for the show comes from Atlassian. With a new story about AI coming out seemingly every day, it can be hard to know what it all means for you and your job. Atlassian thinks there's a lot to be excited about in the AI-powered future. Even right now, Atlassian's AI-powered software can help you boost productivity by eliminating menial tasks, generating insights, and helping you find information about projects, policies, and processes. No matter if you're a team of two or two million, or if you're around the corner or on another continent, Atlassian software keeps everyone connected and moving together as one towards shared goals. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Support for Pivot comes from Pendo. Pendo improves the apps your customers and employees rely on. Whether you're building applications for customers or managing applications for employees, Pendo can help deliver better experiences for your users so they can get more value from your software. Visit pendo.io slash pivot to learn more about how your team can use Pendo to start building better digital experiences. There you can also check out Pendo's lineup of free certification courses, 12 hours of in-depth training for your product management teams on topics from AI to product analytics to product-led growth. That's pendo.io slash pivot to learn more. everyone. This is Pivot from New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Kara Swisher. And if I find a time machine, I'm going back to the age of 17, and I am so dating Representative Lauren Boebert. She is literally <laughs> my dream. Date. Hold on. Senior in high school, imagine getting a date <laughs> with a woman who, first off, takes you to see Beetlejuice the play. All right, right there you've right. won. Okay, yeah, musical, the musical. Let's you grab her boobs, jacks you off, all while vaping. She's literally every 17-year-old boy's dream come true. I think she yeah. should be, yeah. I think she should get a medal. Uh, I think uh, I think this is wonderful. I think she's doing a real service. It just shouldn't be on 45-year-old men who own gay-friendly bars. I'm not sure the term gay-friendly means. It should be- Drag shows. Oh my God, I just- yeah. This is a feature, not a bug. Hats off to her. I knew you would love Lauren Boebert. I knew you'd like the whole thing. That was aggressive boob grabbing. I was kept thinking that. Yeah, everyone was sort of like focusing on the vaping and the who do you think I am? But I was like, that guy was really giving those a workout. Did you notice that? Yeah, but you know what, Kara? If she was really patriotic, she'd jerk off guys in Hamilton. I- <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good. All joking aside, I had a lot, I did a lot of the retweeting of all the very funny memes what's so, what's great a date where you get a hand job and you get kicked out of the theater that's fantastic like you don't have to watch the end of the musical so um but but a lot of people were like it's very serious there are children involved there were what a, oh, come ugh, on. What a i know but it's not i think the children in the theater are going to be just fine uh, yeah probably uh, whatever i <laughs> i wouldn't have loved my child next to her doing that that said i raised my children in the castro and there were naked people everywhere so go ahead sorry yeah ahead. no i think i think i think everyone's going to be just fine what's here what's the impact on her campaign she did apologize i can't think it's good or is it good cuz i vaguely liked her better from it yeah but we're the wrong people to like her the yes, people that she right. needs to like her the people who show up to she's got a really unusual district you know her district aspen yeah. It, it, That's where she met this dude. That's it, where his bar is. Hooches or Hoochie Mamas or something like hooches? that. Have you been oh, there? He owns sure. Hooches? Hooches, yeah. Hooch. Oh, I oh, think see, I have. Of course well, he owns Hooch. I have been there. Hooch. Hooch. You went to a bar called Hooch? Uh, I've done much worse, Kara. 
Okay. And by the way, can we all stop pretending to like Hamilton? Anyways. <laughs> I love Hamilton. Yeah. Uh, well, of course we all do, Kara. Anyways, uh, like the strange thing is- so, Gotta take my shot. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. So Sorry. I love ha- Aspen and have bought a home there and plan to maybe someday retire You have there. another home. Yet um, another Scott Galloway home yeah, that I'll be staying at. It's this podcast. Yeah, that's why I bought it. We want to see more of you. Um, so- uh, she, and then I found out, literally, I kind of thought twice about whether I want to live in Aspen. She's, she's our representative because as is the case with the corrupt, um, uh, the corrupt vehicle that is gerrymandering, they create these perverted, unnatural districts. And she covers pretty, a pretty conservative part of Colorado. And then it jets out and covers Pitkin County, which is where Aspen is. Yeah. Yeah. I cannot think of a place where Loam Bobert would be more of a fish out of water than Aspen. Right. I know. Well, the other guy the, on the Aspen Council almost beat her, like 500 votes, and that was it. And that's all she wrote. But the net effect, I think he will beat her this time. I can't imagine her core constituency finds this amusing. No, I don't think so at all. Although we do. We find it very amusing. We find the entire thing amusing. It made for it, Twitter suddenly became fun over the weekend, but then not. That was it. Yeah, but Threads was fun too. It was everywhere. All of social media became fun over the weekend. Um, once again, because she really does, you know, she does provide a lot of content and other things for people. It was really fun. I still can't get over the boob grabbing. That was some boob grabbing there. I want to meet that guy now. We should go. Let's go to Hooch's. When I come and stay at your house, uh, it's great. If it's the if it's the bar I'm thinking about, it's actually it's really good. Yeah, I don't know why I would know that name. Anyway, we have a lot to talk about besides Lauren Boebert's uh, breast fondling and hand jobbing. Today, we'll talk about the latest strike updates and what they mean for labor. Disney possibly saying goodbye to ABC and linear television, and we'll talk with a friend of Pivot. Benjamin Cohen about his new book, The Einstein Effect, how the world's favorite genius got into our cars, our bathrooms, and our minds, and what it's like to manage Albert Einstein's official accounts on social media. Anyway, Scott, have you listened to my uh, Walter Isaacson interview about his biography? I haven't, but I will. But I was, I, I'd like you to talk about it. What were the most interesting moments? I think it's interesting. I went to a book party for him last night in Washington, which had all of like official Washington. It was crazy. Was it at the French Embassy? It was at the Renwick Gallery. And uh, it's one of its big donors, David Rubenstein, ran it uh, through the party. It was it was actually a lovely party, but like everybody was there. And I ran it to Nancy Pelosi, who actually insulted Elon right in front of Walter, which, and then she came up, she goes, she goes, that mean? I go, Nancy, you knew just what you were doing. She was, she does not like Elon Musk. I, let me tell you about it. I asked him a lot of things. I was questioned some of his sourcing of, of trusting Elon so much. I asked him all the uh, questions about why he left out all the racist, sexist, misogynist, anti-Semitic stuff. I asked him about that and what he thought. I think he stuck to his guns on a lot of stuff. He did cop a plea, he said, on a number of things that he got wrong, including the Starlink stuff. And uh, I did manage to get him to admit that he has an opinion about uh, Elon Musk, which was one of my issues with the book, is that he acted like a camera and and never would tell us what the photograph looked like. You know, you could, it's, you could only for so long not come to a conclusion after you spent with someone for two years. He does not come to a conclusion in the book, except he said, he said, he said, he said kind of thing. We talked about that. He came and answered questions. I can't say we agreed a lot. Um, he has this vision of Elon as a Shakespearean you know, character who is full of conflict and complexity. And I have a 
a, a version of Ms. Squidward on uh, SpongeBob SquarePants, except red pilled. Um, so, uh, and that that he should he should have an opinion. And I think, of course, last night, right before it was about to drop, Elon did another anti George Soros thing, um, which was crazy, a crazy tweet about that. And I sent it to Walter. I go, Walter, he's not a Shakespearean actor. He's just just an ant you know, just a really terrible person. Let me uh, let me play a clip. I asked him about what he thought about Elon personally and even mentioned you, Scott. So let's listen to a clip. Am I supposed to tout up all the times I liked and respected and all the times I flinched? And yes. Was yeah, it was. Let, let me give you an easier. Scott Galloway calls an idolatry of innovators uh, that excuses cruelty, that excuses anti-Semitism, excuses misogyny, excuses being, quite frankly, not an ideal father, as long as you're really fucking rich. Is it an apologist not to come to a conclusion or not? I, you no, may I mean, I come to me. a lot and I let the reader come to a lot of conclusions in this book, which is a lot of the things. Look, you've read those Twitter chapters. Mm-hmm. What he did, the hypocritical things of trying to ban, mm-hmm. you know, reporters on the Washington Post to, mm-hmm. uh, after he says he's for free speech, uh, a lot of those things he does, I think, you're clear. I yeah. uh, is not me apologizing mm-hmm. for him. Anyway, it went on like that a lot. He, uh, he he sort of wants it both ways. He equivocates on Musk a lot and every now and then says, but he built a rocket, that kind of thing, which he did, uh, which he did. I didn't, I'm not denying any of those. It just, uh, I don't think the price, I think the price is too high. And then we had a back and forth, in fact, last night um, where he said, Kara thinks, has an opinion about these people. I I decide just to let the reader decide. And I said, the issue I have is you think that you have to be an asshole to be uh, impactful in society in some way. And he he said, well, I think that's the case. I, I said, there's a lot of people who aren't. And I turned to my right and Steve Case is sitting, standing right there. And I said, here's someone who's not an asshole who had a big impact. Um, and Steve laughed. And I said, well, Steve, it's a low bar, but nonetheless. And I, I said, there's roomfuls of people like that here um, and elsewhere. So it was an interesting discussion. Yeah, I'm but glad see, to I, refer to you. Uh, I would... I would argue that Walter does have a, an opinion, and he presents that opinion over 700 pages incrementally and powerfully, and that is that this person's cruelty and diminishment of special interest groups uh, and, quite frankly, just unproductive, reckless actions that really hurt people, uh, I would argue that Walter does have an opinion, that it's a function of childhood trauma that excuses it. In the book, uh, there's this thing where you know, according to Elon, he went to this very tough school where he was bullied and he immediately learned how to punch back. I'm going to be honest. I think that's total fucking bullshit. Uh, I went to, what do you know, a story that excuses his mendacious, cruel behavior, but also makes him look like a hero as a kid who was bullied and punches back. And I, I, I don't know the school he went to, but like I, I went to a, a fairly rough uh, junior high and high school, and there wasn't a lot. I mean, there was some bullying, but there wasn't a lot of need to like. I, I, it just doesn't ring true to me. <laughs> it doesn't excuse it. I agree. I actually, we had a back and forth about that because there is the, it opens the book opens on that 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 about being beaten up, and he talks about a kid he beat up uh, having to do with this kid's father. Uh, this guy beat him up, and Elon and his brother insisting this guy was a bad seed. He went to juvie, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I asked Walter if he called the kid, and he hadn't. He hadn't called the kid. Um, I asked him if he checked juvie, and he hadn't checked. So it was a he said, he said, and that was my issue was, 
I was like, someone's lying here, someone, and I don't know which one, but you made the father look like a demon. And so Elon's getting a a huge amount of the sympathy. Um, I just want you to check to which one. And it's fine if Elon's telling the truth. I just want to know who is telling the truth. And that's, that was my issues. But with research, when you try to normalize external factors to say if they impact something, you do you you control for it. And the way we can control for this is that we have his siblings. His brother Kimball likely experienced the same environment, the same abusive father, the same schools that were bullying. And guess what? I don't know Kimball, but I've been on I've been at events with him and he strikes me as a fairly like lovely. mellow, nice, lovely guy. He is <laughs> and lovely. I would I'm gonna go out on a limb he here. He loves and say, his brother too much, but yes, he is. Well, well that, that's a term for that brother, right? Right. Yeah. And and then there's his siblings. So Okay, you're there is that does not cause this. That is not ex- an excuse for this behavior. As a matter of fact, I would argue he has less of an excuse to behave this way because of his incredible blessings and success and the power he he wields. So to say that he, I just don't buy that Walter let people decide. No, Walter came into this with what I'll call a creeping makeover of Elon Musk's persona. And I think it really, as we do in society, and and I don't even know if Walter realized he was doing it, we're just so fucking fascinated with people who can figure out ways to make billions of dollars leveraging zeros and ones that we we want to let their victories burn brighter and we want to constantly dampen and extinguish their flaws as men and as humans. Yep, I think that's well said. And and that very well said. And actually, there's a very good review that I think people should read. Adam Lashinsky, who knows a thing or two, as I do about access journalism. Um, and uh, and he wrote a review for the information that I think is a must read. I think it's quite fair. He's a, he's a colleague and friend of uh, Walter's, as am I. I like Walter personally. Um, and uh, I want to stress that. Uh, and I've liked a lot of his work, a lot of it. And um, I think his Ben Franklin thing was fantastic. Um, you know what struck me? Let me just tell you, back to Lauren Boebert, because that's where we all should be living, is who knew theaters were like surveilling people so well? I, I was thought like, that, that was shocking. Thank you. And you know that the theater was, was like, fuck this bitch. We're going to just yeah. release. Sorry. Oh, my God. They watch us all. I like. I have to be careful about what I do in theaters. I think I just sit there. Did you see how much she lied afterwards, though, saying, I was not disruptive? And- oh, totally. But that they are watching us. They are watching us in the theater. I now am very aware. I don't do much. I, I like. I eat. I secretly eat from things I brought outside. Now they know I do it. Like, I bring out, bring in, like, Stuff, really? Mo- You're a secret balls. eater? Now I'm a secret eater. I, they're quiet foods, See, but nonetheless. I'm safe because I don't go to anything cultural. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you have it. Anyway, I was astonished by the, their quality of their technology. Anyway, uh, Jan Wenner, co-founder of Rolling Stone magazine, speaking of douche, uh, has been removed from the board of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, Foundation. The ousting came uh, one day after an interview for the New York Times where Wenner uh, comments were criticized being sexist and racist, and indeed they were. The interview was surrounding the release of Wenner's book, The Masters, which is a collection of his decades of interviews with rock stars, all of whom are white and male. When asked why no women or people of color are included at all, 
Hall, Leonard said, the women, quote, just weren't articulate enough on this intellectual level. And the people of color, quote, didn't articulate at that level either. Wenner is part of a group that started the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Foundation in 1983. It has since been criticized for its lack of diversity of the artists it inducts, with 65% of the inductees being white men and just 7.7% being women as of 2019. What a stupid thing to say. Just, you know, I think what he's saying now is it's my opinion in my book, which, okay, you're you're still, you can't find Tina Turner, uh, Joni Mitchell. He actually insulted Joni Mitchell. Um, you know, you could go through dozens of really amazing women, um, you know, whether you like Taylor Swift or not, important, articulate, et cetera, et cetera. I, I, I don't know. It just sort of reminds me of how much he got to control the narrative around these people becoming saviors and saints versus really art, uh, finding all kinds of interesting artists we could look at. Um, I don't know. I just, I'm like, none of them? Like that, that to me was sort of like, are you drunk? Are you like stupid? Or I don't know. I just thought it was a, it was a self-own in many ways. And he could have any opinion he wants, but he's stupid. He seems stupid. Yeah. My, my favorite rock and roll artists were, you know, R.E.M. and if you call George Michael rock and roll, but, uh, at least half of them were women, as I look back, like junior yeah, high. Patty Smith. Uh, Patty Smith, come on. Deborah Harry, uh, Pat yeah. Benatar. Pat Benatar. Uh, Stevie yeah. Nicks. Yeah, Stevie um, Nicks. So there were, well, anyways, I mean, I don't think anyone's arguing that. Uh, and by the way, Supertramp, who I thought were women until I was a se- found out they weren't. So that was to- that was totally unfair. I was going to grow up and marry the lead singer of Supertramp, and then I found out they were all dudes. But not, not there's anything wrong with that. Okay. Um, uh, but... I think my impression is that this was right in the sense that you had this old white dude who's grown up in a life of privilege. He has he has an incredible accomplishments. He was one of the co-founders of the Rock and Roll of Fame. He was, yeah, yeah. And then as some old out-of-touch dude, he says these really stupid things. And they said, you know what? You shouldn't be a fiduciary resp- uh, responsible for governing the decisions of this important institution. And they removed him. And then... And then he apologized and said, and his apology kind of read as authentic. It didn't feel like something that was a PR gangbang. So I I felt like this whole thing kind of played out as it should. Yep. And so, you know, next. Yeah, great. Agree. It was stupid, John. He fucked up. He paid the price. Next. Fucked up, paid the price. Now we're moving on. Okay. Also, speaking of which, about feedback, feed forward is a new work term. I know this is driving you crazy. According to an article published in the Wall Street Journal, some employers are saying feedback is on the way out to make way for less anxiety-inducing corporate lingo, feed forward. Examples include AstraZeneca, which changed its review process in 2020 to embrace feed forward and performance development with performance management, and Microsoft, where feedback is branded as perspectives and anonymous comments from peers are no longer part of the review process. I got to say, I, I I went MAGA on this one. I was like, feed forward. Are you fucking kidding me, Scott? Though you, uh, I'd love to hear what you think of this. I don't think we're doing young people any favors. So now granted, I'm, I have a bit of an abused child syndrome. And that is my first job out of UCLA was at Morgan Stanley, where they prided themselves on, on, on being abusive. And I don't think that was right. You had to be there before anybody else. You couldn't leave till after anyone else. And the only How thing- How did that work? Because someone is always last if everyone had to be there before anybody else. I well, think. senior Go. to you. So okay. the analysts would have to stay until the associates, the vice presidents, the Got managing it. directors had all left. And uh, the only thing I was known for, because I wasn't nearly as- well-educated or smart or hardworking as everybody else was every Monday morning, I would go into, or was it Tuesday? I would go on Tuesday morning and I would stay till Wednesday night. I would work the night through. And they rewarded that type of behavior. 
they thought that was impressive and it showed commitment. And the, you know, I'd work 36 hours straight because I had that ability. I was young, I was strong. I didn't have anyone waiting at home for me. I stayed late at the post too, but go ahead. Yeah, it wasn't required. It was abusive, but I don't think we're doing, I don't think we're doing young people. Well, let me back up. I'll, I'll tell you what I do as a manager and then I'll, I'll, I'll do a thought. I think young people need watering. I think they need, I think constant feedback, both positive and what I'll call constructively negative is really important. And the thing that I think is really damaging about not being in an office together is something we have always done at my firms, is whenever something did something good or, or not good, I would pull them into a conference room and I would say, you know, um, you should keep doing that. When you said that and you had the data, that was fantastic. Or the fact that you came out and welcome. I, I, is that I, feed forward? Well, okay. But I would also bring them into a room and I would say, you're, 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 you're speaking just to hear yourself talk in meetings and you're not saying anything. And also you need to, or I would say, I would say this report, this data you just sent me is literally worthless. It's literally worthless. And it, you, it, this reads like someone who needed to have a 2000 word essay and you got 200 words of insight. Don't send me shit like this again. And I would use those exact same terms. What I find is the younger you are, the younger the person is, the more you have to bias towards watering and positive because these are young people. And and then and after a while, then it's like then it's the just fuck? give it to them straight because they need yeah, to they need straight feedback such that they can feed their families and get you know have good careers. But I think this whole notion, I do think it's gone a little bit far where we've decided. Uh, so mental health is important, but you need a certain skill set, and I think we just are st we want to use so many sanitary wipes on young people's careers that they don't develop their own immunities, they don't develop calluses, they don't develop a certain level of thick skin, because I got to be honest, that experience at Morgan Stanley, I think it was really good for me in the sense that I realized work is hard. People can be jerks. There is a hierarchy. And guess what? When people are mean to you or abusive, you recover from it and you're fine. And I think some of that, that kick in the ass training I got at Morgan Stanley for two years, I think on a net basis, it was really positive for me. And I worry with young people that we are training them to believe the world is different than it is. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I think about that though. That's how I look at it too. And I, I think you do that with kids too. You know, like, you know, sugar, you be supportive when necessary and, and clear and honest when not, you know, in some levels. It's, you know, I thought this was stupid. I think it was a little bit of clickbaity when, you know, those newspaper stories that are always like, this is the trend. Like no one's going out after work. I was like, I don't know. I was just saw a lot of people look like they work together at a bar. It's just like, I don't think you can speak for any big trends, ultimately. I hate trend stories. Um, anyway, uh, I think you're 100% right. Again, Scott, another great insight. Okay, let's get to our first big story. Summer might be coming to an end, but a summer of strikes is still marching on with workers across industries walking off the job and th or threatening to do so. There have been more than 270 strikes in the U.S. this year, more than 320,000 workers involved, up significantly from the same period in 2021, according to data from Cornell. The latest group to join, as everyone knows, is United Auto Workers, who strike against the big three automakers, Ford, GM, and Chrysler parent company Stellantis, uh, began last week with nearly 13,000 workers walking off the job at plants in Ohio, Michigan, and Missouri. That's part of the the UAW's targeted strategy, not all members are walking off at once. 
The UAW's demands include a 40% pay increase, expansion of pension plans, and shorter work weeks. Wow, what do you think about this? The numbers of union members is lowest in decades. Since the 1950s, one in three workers were represented by a union. Now it's closer to one in 10. Um, Why do you think there's an increase first, Scott? Why do you think that is? There's enormous empathy for the notion that in the wealthiest economy in the world, in an economy that on most dimensions has continued to have tremendous prosperity, our stock market is up on a risk-adjusted basis almost more than any G7 market, including including um, China, when employment are historic lows, when young people are having a tougher time buying a home. There's just a general agreement Oh, and by the way, corporate profits are at an all-time high, but as a share of GDP, wages are at an all-time low. There's just general consensus that we aren't putting enough money in workers' pockets, that labor has been kicked in the nuts over and over by capital, and that work deserves more dignity in the world's wealthiest nation. The problem is rumors of unions' resurgence have been greatly exaggerated, Kara. And that is for all the notion about this hot, hot girl union summer— In 2022, unions lost membership. I mean, it's, I did some math here. It's about 10 or 11% of all workers. Only 155 million people actually work. I got a lot of shit. I went on CNN and I said, unions are a failed construct. And I got, I don't want to say attack. That's not fair. I got a lot of, I got a lot of feedback. Yeah, you got a lot of feed. You got a lot of feedback. I got a lot of forward back. Forward back. Because people, people see that their bona fides as progressive, empathetic people is to be pro union. And I get that, but here's the problem. They're not working. They're not working for the majority. Yeah, they're not. What have you done for me lately? I think that's what they really have to answer that question. Now, you thought, you told me you thought the the strike would end pretty quickly. Do you still think so? Negotiating meetings took place over the weekend, but UAW President Sean Fein, who has such an unfortunate name, so it sounds like that that Irish group, uh, and Sinn Fein, says progress has been slow. A 21% pay increase offer from Stellantis was rejected. They're in the 20s, the, the, the companies. The UAW is using a tactic of stand up strikes, basically calling on segments of the 146,000 members who work at the three big plants to strike at different times, different places, using element of surprise for leverage, which is interesting. That to me was, super, this guy seems super creative, Sean Fain. Uh, the UAW, just for people who don't know, is demanding a, a 40% pay increase over four years. GM uh, CEO Mary Bear was on CNN on Friday and was asked about that increase in relation to her own compensation, which increased 34% over four years. Let's listen to what she said for a second, and then let me know wh- where you think the strike is going to come out. Well, if you look at uh, compensation, my compensation, 92% of it is based on performance of the company. I think one of the strong aspects of the way our compensation for our represented employees is designed is not only are we putting a 20% increase on the table, we have profit sharing. So when the company does well, everyone does well. And for the last several years, that's resulted in record profit sharing for our represented employees. And I think you have to look at the whole uh, compensation package, not only 20% increase in gross wage, but also uh, the profit sharing aspect of it, world-class health care, and there's several other features. So we think we have a very competitive offer on the table, and that's why we want to get back there and get this done. Oh, that was pretty good. I think, um, I think that was good. I think one of the things that she gets sucked into is if you use that 92% based on performance, they do look like Scrooge McDuck's. I think Bob Iger fell prey to that, even though he's mostly paid by stock. Um, so talk first about whether you think it's going to settle quickly and what you think of this argument. Well, there's a lot there. That, uh, so first off, um, I think it gets settled within 30 days, probably less, because unlike whoever whoever's running the Writers Guild, the UAW does not have their head up their asses. And that is they are strategic. 
They are being very thoughtful. They are they are unified. They are shutting down plants at critical, kind of critical uh, leverage points. And quite frankly, I think their demands are entirely reasonable. The starting pay for a UAW worker in 2008 was $19. Then we had the great financial crisis, bankruptcies, and they lowered it to 18. And if it had just kept pace with inflation, it'd be about 28 or 29 bucks. What they're asking for, in my view, is reasonable. And at, uh, they've asked for 40%. The auto guys have offered them 20 I think the deal gets settled. The, the The gorilla in the room or the elephant in the room here is that is that uh, Tesla, which is now worth more than all yeah, of them we combined, talked about that last uh, week. has an average hourly compensation rate of $45 an hour or cost, including profit sharing and healthcare. And the American automobile manufacturers where the UAW is present are producing cars at $65 a share. And one of the reasons why US automakers are trading at a multiple of five times earnings, which basically, when your company is trading at five times earnings, Kara, that means the market has decided there's a really good chance you're gonna go out of business. And there's just no getting around it when the majority of the auto industry is not subject to the same compensation pressures you end up with a bifurcated system where one company is just worth more than others, which goes to my whole go-to, and that is the following. Unions are are good, but they're just not effective. And there's a difference between being right and effective. And if we all believe, if we all believe, if 75% of Americans believe in unions, what they're really saying is we believe in dignity of work. What they're really saying is we believe anyone who works 40 hours a week shouldn't live below the poverty line. We really believe that that the people who own shares, including the CEOs of these companies who are making tens of millions of dollars and have seen their compensation go from 30 times the average worker salary to 300 times the worker salary, that they deserve to at least keep up with inflation and productivity. And the only way you're going to do this, the only way you're going to do this and not have capital flow to the guys who aren't union, and then all those people get rich, and then the people who were union end up going out of business, the only way you can do this is a federally mandated massive increase in minimum wage. Yep, you have said this. You've been doing this for years. Been saying this for years, Scott Galloway. What, well, let me let me ask let me ask you this. This is my my my. This is when I do occasionally I do channel Bernie Sanders. What would what would be a more elegant, crisp way of reducing depression, obesity, male abandonment, diabetes, homelessness, twenty five divorce? Than if we said. And by the way, corporate corporate profits are at an all-time high, percentage of wages at an all-time low. If you stepped in and you said federally mandated with the with the exceptions of under the age of 21 or in certain certain rural parts of mm-hmm. America where the cost of living is in the lower quartile, then it's $15, but for everyone else it's $25 an hour. What would solve more of these problems A faster? Rise in minimum wage. Without an increase in the deficit. And by the way, Except, all the Let me let me can I push back Elon, you just said Elon's $45, they're 65 and now they're going to have to pay more? They're fucked because Elon's not going to, they haven't been able to organize at Tesla factories at all. Um, and he makes the argument, I'm good, better for you than they are. Um, so they're just going to have to increase their costs. Everyone but the Elon Musks and the foreign manufacturers. But uh, at 25 bucks an hour, first off, if you look at wages and productivity in America, they were like two snakes intertwined. And that is every time there was an increase in productivity in corporate America for 210 years, wages went up. Uh, the, the market went up and wages went up. We, everybody got to share. Capital and labor got to share in increases in productivity. And then in the 70s, wages went flat for a variety of reasons. And productivity went up and to the right because we prioritized 
shareholders. So if wages had just kept pace with productivity, uh, minimum wage would be at somewhere between 23 and 28 bucks an hour right now. And this, this wouldn't make the automobile manufacturers really any less competitive because they're probably going to end up, especially after this, almost all of them, the foreign guys, Tesla, at 25 bucks or more. But but this is what you have. You have corporate profits at an all-time high. Yeah. Let me let me ask you, in response to that interview that she gave, the UAW tweeted, during the eight and a half minutes, GM CEO Mary Barra appeared on CNN this morning. She earned more money than any auto worker makes in a full day work, and that's how the big three want to keep it. Her compensation was $29 million. That's you, Ford CEO. Jim Farley earned $21 million, and uh, Stellantis CEO Carlos Tavares, $25 million. A lot. This is a lot of its stock base, let's be clear. Any? How do they? How do they deal with that? That visual, whether people realize it's stock or not, is kind of the point. But, but let me now channel Milton Friedman and Josh Hawley. The reality is, in a free market, people will not disarm unilaterally. They always negotiate the best compensation they can, and shareholders have decided that getting the right guy or the right gal to make the key decisions is so important and pays off so much for everybody. That and the competition is so fierce to try and find the right guy or gal that can handle the massively intense, difficult job of being a CEO. That that person over time, and plus they get to know they they get to know everyone on the board and they become their buddy. The CEO compensation has just gone apeshit, and this has happened in auto industry. It's happened in every industry. It's happened in every industry. So I don't know it, what you can do other than the following, and that is if someone makes over call it a million bucks a year, I think they should pay a 40% uh, federal uh, income tax. And I think if someone makes over $10 million a year, they should probably pay 50. Because this is what you do. The supply and demand, we do need, you do, I don't think you want to, the government wants to get in the way of corporations telling how much they can pay people. What they can say is that if you're making this kind of money, we should probably go back to when we invest, reinvested in the middle class, reinvested in innovation such that we could maintain the middle class and have this strange thing called the progressive tax structure. It could be, in my view, the the real the real crime, if you will, or tragedy or negative part of Mary Barr's compensation isn't that she's making so much, it's that she's paying lower taxes than than those people. I believe in a progressive tax structure, but if you start weighing in and saying to companies who can't pay their CEOs as much, I just don't think it works. I just think they use it as a boogeyman constantly. It's been used quite a lot. The logical and intuitive counter-argument against raising minimum wage of $25 is that it would put a ton of businesses out of business. And when Washington State, California, and New York raised their minimum wages dramatically, what we actually found was that the economy grew and jobs grew because when you put more money in lower middle income households' hands, they do this wonderful thing, they spend all of it. And so just this incumbent notion by corporations and shareholders that it's going to ruin the economy, it's actually the opposite. It actually ends up being stimulus. Some updates the entertainment front. Bill Maher just posted on Twitter a little while ago that he's not bringing back his show after all, saying, my decision to return to work was made when it seemed nothing was happening and there's no end in sight for the strike now that both sides have agreed to go back to the negotiating table. I'm going to delay the return of real time for now, and I hope I can finally get this done. All the bigs are meeting uh, with all the bigs. Like, they're the real ones, Iger, the rest, the whole gang. Um, this follows the Drew Barrymore update of the weekend when she said she was going to pause production and not go back following all the backlash. The, the, the talk and Jennifer Hudson show were also planning on coming back. But after Drew's announcement on Sunday, they said they're holding off their returns. Um, 
does it surprise you that they that they push back, uh, that they decided to change their minds? Do you think we're seeing some actions or reactions without being factored in? What do you think? Okay, so Drew and Bill were shamed. They said, look, this is really awful. You're being an awful person. Uh, but they effectively ended the strike, and I believe the writer's strike is going to end in the next 30 days, if not the next two weeks. Because uh, I know a lot of what I'll call senior level writers, and and their attitude is, okay, I'm lucky I didn't need the money, but even worse than that, I just lost four years, uh, four months of my career in life. I'm running out of time, and they're saying this is a shit show. That they they plan the strike really poorly. That these people have done a terrible job. That going after. AI, which no one can even articulate, minimum number of writers and rooms. And then the, the thing about unions is they're so disorganized and so disjointed. Bill Maher was on Ari Melber and he asked the right question. He's like, how come you get to have a show today? So this is this has gone, this has gone on too long. They have no leverage. So what you have here, uh, an environment where there's 180,000 mem- members of SAG-AFTRA, 180,000 actors. Guess what percentage of them make $24,000 and qualify for health insurance? Like 10%. 12%. Very good. Meaning there are just too many goddamn actors, meaning they yep. have no leverage because the bottom line point. is the majority of these people would probably do it for free. So they should have dignity of work, but they have very little leverage. They Their demands were ridiculous. Ridiculous. At least you can understand the demands of the Teamsters and the UAW. But here's the thing. On the other side, the studios have woken up and realized, okay, guys, we've been stupid. We convinced ourselves we were on the same side of the table as Netflix. Do you know what has happened to Disney stock since the writer's strike Declined. came out? It's down 12%. Do you know what's happened to Netflix stock since the writer's strike? Up and to the right. Up 50%. Yeah, we got it. We've been calling. Scott, can I just say we've called this beautifully. Here's the thing. The writer's strike gets gets um, done within the next 30 days because the big guys that aren't Netflix, the big guys sans Netflix are like, okay, we've been played. Netflix, this was a feature, not a bug for Netflix. The writers, the most important people, uh, the most talented and probably smartest and biggest voices uh, that I can tell, my Pulse Marketing talk to them are like, I am fed up with this shit. We have handled this poorly. They're all getting together next week. I think it gets hammered yep, out. Yeah, I agree. I, I do think Bill especially realized, oh, no, I, I called this one too. I should have waited because they were going to meet. They were meeting. It didn't. I don't think it pushed it into meeting. I think it was. Ha- I knew it was happening before Bill Maher's nonsense. Okay, but if it like goes that. another 30 days, 50, 50 Bill Maher's and Drew's are going to go, you know what? That's we're cor- done. Yeah, that's right. That we're is done. correct. That's correct. Anyway, the, just one thing that is at play, California lawmakers uh, passed legislation this week, which would make striking workers eligible for unemployment benefits. If Governor Gavin Newsom signs the bill, it would go into effect in January. So this is hanging over their head. This would help them. It, it, it is in effect in New York, by the way. People don't know that. Anyway, uh, let's go on a quick break. When we come back, Disney's possible sale of ABC, and we'll talk with a friend of Pivot, uh, Benjamin uh, Cohen, about why Albert Einstein is more relevant than ever. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from Atlassian. One of our customers who produces pizza at a very large scale all across the world. Believe it or not, they use AI to review the quality of the pizzas that are created. That goes through a workflow that scans the images of the pizzas and makes sure they visually look like what they should. So it's pretty cool. That's Sharif Mansour, Atlassian's head of AI. 
Sharif thinks there's a lot for companies to be excited about on the AI-generated horizon, spanning everything from making pizza to producing podcasts like the one you're listening to now. There'll be far more jobs created on the other side of this revolution. Instead of a world of less, Sharif envisions an AI-powered world of more. In everyone's day job, they're moving from doing the thing to often being an architect of the thing. It unleashes the potential of every human. And I think we can go from a world where few people have access to a high level of intelligence to a lot more people having access to this information. AI is really giving everyone on the planet more resources to do great things. And I'm very optimistic about that opportunity that lies ahead. Transform teamwork with the power of AI-human collaboration. Start using Atlassian Intelligence for your Atlassian products like Jira and Confluence now. Learn more at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N dot com. Scott, we're back. Is Disney getting out of the linear TV business? It certainly looks like it, with Bloomberg reporting that local broadcaster Nexstar has held preliminary talks with Disney to acquire ABC and its affiliates. Another suitor in the mix, media mogul Byron Allen, who's reportedly made a preliminary offer of $10 billion for ABC and its affiliates, along with cable networks FX and National Geographic. In response to these reports, Disney put out a statement saying, while we're open to considering a variety of strategic options for our linear businesses, at this time, the Walt Disney Company has made no decision with respect to the divestiture of ABC or any other property, and any report to that effect is unfounded. That means it's happening. Byron Allen also looked at a whole bunch of things. So what do you think? Uh, First off, Byron Allen lives in Aspen, so I hope he gets the assets. Um, Look, and by the way, what they just said is a total lie. That's them positioning to try and get a higher price. And the best acquisitions, hands down, from a price standpoint, are corporate orphans. And I don't know who's going to buy these assets. They're going to make out like crazy. And this is what I think is going to happen. Because, and they don't want to talk about this, the most valuable people in the world of advertising, a seven-year-old boy who buys stupid products because he's about to go into his mating years, whether it's shoes or salty snacks, or high margin coffee or electronics goods. Yeah, all of them are now watching TikTok more than than uh, they are watching all cable and all streaming combined. And that is what is driving all of this, this structural decline, is that the people who these advertisers want to reach are no longer, uh, they can no longer reach on these, you know, traditional, traditional media. What you're going to have is between Time Warner, Viacom, and Disney, if they were to shed their cable assets and sell them for $1, their stock prices would probably go up because it muddies their stories. Between the parks and Disney Plus, Bob Iger has a story. He has a cash cow. He has a growth vehicle, even though it's losing money. And then he spends the rest of the earnings call apologizing for this melting ice cube known as his ad-supported cable. They're going to take all of them. They're going to divest them, whether it's to Nexstar or somebody else. And the key will be a private equity-like mentality where they say, okay, stop trying to inject Botox and fillers into Nana and Pop-Up. They're old. And we're going to make them comfortable. And if the business is declining 4% a year, we're going to cut costs 6% a year through consolidation and cost cutting. And we are going to make a shit ton of money because these things are still very, very profitable. It's a little like AOL. Speaking of Steve Case, AOL's dial-up business is still was still making money, still continues. Well, did I tell you? I can't, I'm sorry. I'm so old. I can't remember which podcast I talked about. Uh, you know, one of my best investments was in a Yellow Pages company. Because it was a business you could buy for two to three times cash flow. And all we did was go buy the biggest Yellow Pages companies in Australia and Canada. And then quite frankly, we'd lay off a lot of people. 
Uh, but you could be generous because the companies were making a lot of money. That you know, Yellow Pages are still very profitable, and the business was declining. We thought it was going to decline twelve percent a year. It ended up declining eight percent a year. We cut costs ten percent a year, and every year the EBITDA on the stock price would go up. And, but instead. They got to stop bringing in people that think that ESPN is going to grow again, or that we can make FX Network grow again. Just for some some numbers here, the first nine months of 2023, Disney's linear networks had an operating income of about five billion dollars, down 27 percent from the same period a year ago. It's really declining. It used to be a big cash cow. In his third quarter report for the year, Disney specifically pointed out to ABC struggles with declines in advertising revenue and average viewership. Recent carriage dispute with Spectrum was a huge headache uh, for Disney. Bob Iger also made headlines when he said that Disney's linear TV assets may not be core to the company. Um, so this isn't a shock, but um, what do you think of these buyers? Uh, they could have some issues removing FX and Nat Geo, both of which are tied to Disney streaming with Hulu and Disney Plus. They could make a deal. And again, like you, Bill Cohen on Puck said private equity should buy. Next, our already owns News Nation and a cable uh, news channel that skews to the to the right. They're they're an interesting group. They're right-ish, right center right, I guess. How would it work as ABC part of the brand? Uh, CNN's Oliver Darcy shared that an ABC news staffer told him everyone is freaking the fuck out. Tell me about what you think about these buyers you think and and bill thinks that it should be private equity but others you know next the next star could be interesting look so first off i think i think chris cuomo is an enormous talent i do too i was i, I think he's a really good broadcaster i think he's very good at what he does and i think he's at a central casting for what you want an anchor quite frankly i saw him do something the other day on crime in cities on next on on news nation and it was excellent. And you don't, he didn't see it on cable. I'll tell you, I, I, it was all these mayors and I thought it, it was good. I know people have problems with Chris, but. He works hard. He's very talented. He manages to disagree in a thoughtful, civil way. Uh, he's very handsome. He's had a central casting for what you would want. And I, I think he's one of the most talented. And by the way, the people I know at CNN, a lot of them all said the same thing, regardless of what they think about how he left. An enormous talent. Anyway. Well, let me just say, he shouldn't have helped his brother, but welcome to Kimball Musk's Okay, again, uh, Musk's again job. there's a word I'm for that, brother. brother. I get it. I get it. I'm just, just going to point it out because we're going to get yelled at. Anyways, you're going to see, th this just makes rolling up all of these cash flowing assets that are in decline and managing them well and saying, okay, we're going to have one person selling you know, SpongeBob SquarePants and the Big Bang Theory into Czechoslovakia, not two different people. And we're going to have one CFO. We're going to be really thoughtful about our costs here. Quite frankly, I'll, this is my observation. And I was thinking about this. And without naming names, I have been in and around Time Warner and CNN for a long time as someone who had a show that didn't go very long, as someone who's constantly appearing on the network. And I've gotten to know a ton of executives and a ton of anchors. And whether it's uh, Jeff Zucker or Chris Cuomo or or Don Lemon, who all leave under what I'll call less than ideal circumstances. If 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 CNN and Time Warner had been growing six or eight percent a year instead of declining six or eight percent a year, they not only wouldn't still all be there, but there wouldn't be any of this bullshit. Agita, nothing creates divorce and stress in a household like economic stress. And here's the thing when I meet with all these people, I think they're all good people. They're all really talented. The thing that makes them hate the network or lawyer up or say they feel vindicated because this guy was fired after I got fired is economic stress. And the fact that these companies are in structural decline. 
Because when you look at all of them, they're all talented people. And the reason why a $10 million a year anchor is fired and they come up with some bullshit excuse is because they can no longer afford to pay this guy $10 million. So it, it, there's two things here that are going to happen, or two themes, good bank, bad bank, put all of these declining but profitable assets into one corporate structure that investors can understand, a private equity mindset, and... Um, um, essentially just manage them for cash flow. And by the way, I would love, whoever is rolling up these assets, I would love to be involved in this business. This, why don't you do, why don't we buy ABC? You always say that. I thought we were buying Twitter. What's interesting oh, yeah. is, you know, you can only buy one of the networks. You know where I think it's going to start, Kara? I think it's going to start at Viacom with CBS and her assets because Sherry has to do something. Her Viacom's off 75%. In the last five years, and do what you'd want to do is George Stephanopoulos, or do we want to own? You can. What's weird Vegas? because of old antitrust laws, only a company can only own one of the three major networks, which shows you how outdated they are because they saw them as the most powerful forces in modern media. But somebody is going to aggregate a big, big pile of these cable assets. And instead of maintaining the consensual hallucination that they're ever going to be young again and teenagers and grow, just manage them really well. They probably won't decline as much as it make 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 investments in key areas. They will make a ton of money. I don't know if it's Apollo. I don't know if it's Nexstar. I don't know if it's uh, I don't know if it's Jesse Cohen at Elliott. Scott and I would like to own George Stephanopoulos. That's how we want it to be. There we go. Anyway, it really interesting. You're right. This is going to move through CBS and ABC and probably not NBC because it's sort of in there in the thing. Well, Comcast, Comcast is always the biggest player. Yeah, they're always, and they've got, and obviously they've got NBC and they've got different assets. They're an they're an interesting one too. They're in it. They've got their. They're doing very well with their uh, streaming network. They're, they're, that's a different creature. They're really they're, well they're, managed. Are, they're really already kind well of there. They're already kind of there in these kind which you're talking about. Anyway, fascinating times, uh, and uh, we'll see what happens. But let's bring in our friend of Pivot. Benjamin Cohen is the author of The Einstein Effect, How the World's Favorite Genius Got Into Our Cars, Our Bathrooms, and Our Minds, as well as the news director of The Forward. He also happens to be the man behind the official Albert Einstein accounts on social media, where he posts content to millions of Einstein fans around the world. We're excited to have an almost celebrity in our midst. Uh, tell me, how did you get this job? Like, I don't I tell, explain to people how you got it. I know how you got it, but talk to talk to us about it. Yeah, Einstein is one of the most uh, active dead celebrities on social media. I mean, John Wayne's on social media, but he doesn't really have much to say. Uh, and Einstein has more Facebook fans than Tom Hanks. Than, 20 million? Yeah, than the Rolling Stones. Uh, I got the job because I'm a journalist and I'm obsessed with Albert Einstein and I kind of made myself uh, an Einstein reporter, just reporting anytime Einstein's name was in the news. A lot of quirky stuff, you know, when Einstein stuff goes up for auction. And eventually the Albert Einstein archives uh, started stumbling across my articles. And, you know, most of the people at the archives are academics and physicists. They're not really social media experts. And so they asked me if I would take over the account. And I've, I've been running it uh, since 2017, actually. All right, I want to talk about what you want to do. I just want to point out that I, Kara Swisher, have more followers on Twitter than Albert Einstein. I have 1.5 million followers versus Einstein's 75, uh, 745k followers. And Einstein is an early threads adopter, so we'll give you that. Um, talk to me about why, what, what the what the point of having dead famous geniuses on social media is and the archives and how, why it's important to continue to have all, Albert Einstein, I guess, speaking to us in some way. 
Yeah, I mean, I think people of an older generation obviously know and love Albert Einstein. And I think the point of having him on social media is to make sure that the younger generation is aware of Einstein and all that he stood for. And it's not just it's not just his science. I mean, we live in a world that embraces uh, fear of others, xenophobia, hate and violence towards people that are different. And Einstein was really I mean, I'm not a scientist. I like to call myself a likable idiot. And Einstein was very much a humanitarian. To me, that's much more what he's famous for. And he had empathy and compassion. And I think, I mean, now more than ever, we, we need public figures uh, to speak to that. And so if I can play some small, small part in that, you know, I'm happy to do that. So reaching down seven decades after his death, I mean, he still is probably more um, kinder than most of the current crop of science people that we know we've talked about many times on this show. Um, we, how do you make them relevant in 2023 to young people, though? Uh, well, you know, I was um, I, I post a lot of science articles to show how Albert Einstein's fingerprints can be found in all sorts of our daily lives. Like one of my favorite examples of that is GPS. We all live with GPS technology in our phones, you know, when we get directions to drive somewhere. Albert Einstein's uh, G um, theory of relativity helped make that happen. So if you, I'm not going to get into all the science, but if you have a satellite in space that's moving, you have the Earth that's spinning, and you and your car that's moving, Albert Einstein came up with this elegant mathematical equation that kind of made all those things work in unison. So the next time you have a, a pizza delivery or an Amazon delivery or an Uber driver find you, it's all thanks to Albert Einstein. So one of the other things, and then I'll get to Scott in a second, a big part of the book is, and your role in social media is about combating disinformation. And you had a pretty memorable run-in with Ivanka Trump over an Einstein quote. You write that disinformation was something that Einstein himself faced and nearly ended his career at a couple of points. We all just saw Oppenheimer. He's a big character, a small character, but an important one in it. And talking about uh, disinformation dangerous today, you also quote a professor, Scott Galloway, who says propaganda has become the next nuclear threat. Yeah. I mean, Einstein, you know, we all like to think of fake news as a modern invention. And it's really something that's been around for a long time since the founding of the United States. And it, it's something that nearly derailed Einstein's career when he came up with his theories in the early 1900s. Uh, a lot of scientists thought he was crazy. There were uh, pamphlets and books written trying to uh, denounce Einstein. And then especially as the Nazis came to power, uh, the German uh, the German scientists claimed that they had come up with all these ideas, and they came up with all this fake news about Einstein that was uh, laced with disinformation and with anti-Semitism. And I spoke with, um, there's a whole chapter in the book where I spoke with Lenny Posner, who I know you've had on, on the show before, who's a Sandy Hook father. Um, I actually got the idea from listening to, to your interview with him about how he combated fake news. And he gave me some interesting points about how he learned uh, what he learned from Einstein about how truth can be relative depending on how you look at it. Yeah, nice to meet you, Ben. Uh, what are the common misconceptions as you as you have gotten to know Einstein better? What are one or two things that we history and the public gets wrong about Einstein? That's a great question. Um, I, I I think people, you know, they they think of him as this academic, as this scientist, but he was really. Um, you know, you look at Oppenheimer. We all saw Oppenheimer this summer. Oppenheimer was not a very approachable guy. Uh, he didn't have, you know, kids tonguing on his shirt, you know, asking him for help, uh, science homework help. But that was true with Albert Einstein. You had, he was this, I like to call him the first modern day celebrity. And, you know, he was more famous than the president, more famous than Charlie Chaplin, more famous than all these people. And, 
he was authentic about it. And I think so. A lot of people look at him as none of us really understand. None of us non-scientists understand anything about Einstein per se. But uh, I think just his approachability uh, made him so um, fascinating to the masses. So there's no question that Einstein was a genius, and that word gets applied now to innovators like Steve Jobs and Elon Musk. All three, of course, have been written about by Walter Isaacson, who we talked about earlier. And you also have an Elon connection of sorts. You were a beta tester for Starlink in 2020. Um, Talk a little bit about this idea of what a genius is, because I think Einstein would have abhorred Elon Musk, even if he is a genius. Yeah, I just listened to your interview with Walter this morning, and it got me thinking about Walter's other biography about, about Einstein. And, you know, you're right. Both are geniuses in their own right. But as I said at the beginning, I think, you know, Einstein uh, had empathy and compassion in spades and humility in spades. And uh, if we look at, you know, I think genius is much more than, oh, he invented this or he invented that. I mean, if you look at a a genius is someone who should be a role model for for young people. You know, I know, Scott, this is a a big topic of yours about, you know, young men needing role models uh, nowadays. And I think Einstein um, is a perfect example of that, how he used his fame uh, uh, to, how he used his fame for good. I mean, we look at like uh, someone like uh, Mackenzie Scott uh, versus, you know, Elon Musk, someone who uses their wealth, uh, you know, for, for, for good in the world and to improve the world. Have you thought about, or then as, again, as you've gotten to know Einstein, have you, have you adopted any of his practices, approaches to work, relationships? Have you thought, all right, I, I, I admire his achievements and these are, this is a a best practice I'm going to try and incorporate into my professional or personal life? Yeah. So a couple of things. I mean, and this was really helped by the pandemic. Einstein didn't like uh, anything fancy. He would dress in pajamas. He'd walk, there's stories of him walking around Princeton in his pajamas with a robe on. And I like to refer to him as the, as the Jewish Hugh Hefner. Uh, and so I actually started, it was pretty easy during the pandemic. We all kind of walked around <laughs> in our pajamas, but I, I did adopt more of a, an Einstein aesthetic. Um, but also one of Einstein's greatest achievements was his ability to uh, picture things in his mind that other people couldn't picture. And the way he did that was he would um, he would go sailing. And so he would try to ha- not have any distractions. We talk a lot of nowadays about our phones keep pinging. I think in the time this interview has gone on, my phone has beeped a few times. <laughs> and so Einstein was very much someone who liked uh, solitude and liked breaks. Uh, he played music when he couldn't, when he was uh, encountering a, a problem and he was trying to break through and get that problem. So those kinds of things, uh, not taking everything too seriously. Einstein had a great sense of humor, uh, always had a pithy quote. And so those kinds of things uh, I try to take into my daily life. There's a, there's a chapter in my book called Einstein Life Hacks, which kind of goes into all of these things. Right. There's all kinds of things like that. I, I'm deciding I'm not going to speak to anyone on Tuesdays. Um, you also talk about <laughs> Einstein understanding the power of celebrity and post-death. He's really become a huge brand. I have an Einstein hat or T-shirt or anything that says, um, the book mentions Disney paying millions, the Einstein estate for the use named Baby Einstein, which my older kids use and my younger kids will use. Apple licensing Einstein's image for Think Different, obviously. Einstein's estate is handled by the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, a school that Einstein founded and where he bequeathed his manuscripts, copyrights, and royalties. From 26, 2006 to 2017, Einstein was on the Forbes list of 10 highest paid dead celebrities, bringing in between 10 and $12 million a year. 
and and from the book, Einstein was way ahead of his time before the Beatles and Elvis wore Michael Jordan got a shoe deal with Nike and Dolly Parton built an amusement park, which I've been to and is excellent. Einstein understood the power of celebrity. Can you talk about that? Because I think he'd be great on social media or, or, you know, not being you, like living, like as a living person. Yeah, I think, oh, I think he would love TikTok. Yeah, <laughs> I think he would have, I think he would have a blast on that. Uh, you know, people would come up to him, he'd be traveling, paparazzi would chase him all, all around, and they would ask him his opinion on all sorts of random things, things that he was not even an expert in. And he always had a, had a quote for them. So I think that would be perfect for our social media age. But yeah, like you said, he was way above, don't forget Salesforce, uh, one of their major products at Salesforce is an AI product called Einstein. And they licensed that from the Einstein estate as well. Uh, He came about at this moment in modern media when all of modern media was in place. Newspapers, magazines, photographs, radio, even television. And so I think he kind of struck at that exact moment where he caught all of our imagination. He was playful and had a childlike sense of curiosity. Looked great. Looked great. Looked great. Anytime the paparazzi came, he would take his hat and throw it up in the air because he knew that would make a great picture. I mean, Marie Curie never did that. No. Uh, and, and and it shows to this she day. She was no fun. <laughs> she was no right. Then again, she was dying of radiation poisoning, but go ahead. <laughs> like you said, you know, he, he was just able to relate to people. I, I, I once heard someone refer to him as a as a mythical creature, you know, we've kind of created this. You know, Scott's in the brand and marketing expert here. A, a lot of what brands are is 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 a myth that we create around those people. And I think Einstein's a, a great example of that. After seeing Oppenheimer, it shows that Oppenheimer had I don't know what the word is remorse or guilt after the bomb was dropped. I was fairly curious to understand how Einstein felt about the bomb after after Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Yeah, so that's a great question. So he, his E equals MC squared equation was what laid the foundation for, for the atomic bomb. And he, regr- he, first of all, didn't realize that when he came up with that equation in 1905, that decades later it would be used uh, for such evil. And he spoke out about the proliferation of nuclear weapons for the rest of his life uh, vehemently. He would you know, go around the country speaking about it. He started a bunch of organizations against that. And so I think it was probably, I would, I would venture to say the, the biggest regret uh, in his life that his name is associated uh, with, the, with the atomic bomb. Yeah, yeah. He comes, it was a great role in that movie. I'm gonna, we can't let you go, my final questions, without letting, getting the story of how you saw Einstein's brain in an accurate MDX. Is that correct? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I don't. Most people don't know this, and this is the first thing that got me interested in Einstein was when I discovered that the pathologist who performed Einstein's autopsy in 1955 uh, actually stole Einstein's brain. Uh, many people don't know that, but he stole it and he kept it in a beer cooler in his basement for decades, and nobody knew where it was. And I was able to, to uh, track it down, and I, I found the guy who has it now. It's cut up. It's in a bunch of mason jars, and it was a real spiritual experience to hold those jars because not only is it the last physical vestige of Albert Einstein, but it's what the brain represents. Why does no one go get it from these people? <laughs> it, it, it's hidden. It's hidden. I mean, listen, the, the doctor stole it for for benevolent reasons. He wanted to research to see if Einstein's brain was special or unique in some way. Okay. And so, but he wasn't a brain expert. So he cut oh. it up, sent it out. There are pieces of Einstein's brain all over the world, but oh still most God. of it are, are in these jars. And you know, it, it, 
holding it is is I have to admit was was the probably the most awe-inspiring experience I had writing uh, oh writing the book. Oh my god, you need to get other yeah. awe-insp- don't touch his brain. Let him get <laughs> bury it and I'm going to take out I'm going to carry Scott's brain around at the end of, when he leaves us. Well, that's He's, easy. That's so big yeah, yeah. Anyway, it'll fit in my pocket. Anyway, thank you, Benjamin. It's such an interesting book. And I, we love to have sort of interesting and fun stuff like this. And I really, he's, I have a great admiration for Albert Einstein in many, uh, of, of, if I had to list five or 10 people that I really, Dolly Parton is also right up there. And again, his book is called, and it's really well worth reading. It's really a lot of fun. Uh, the Einstein Effect, How the World's uh, Favorite Genius Got Into Our Cars, Our Bathrooms, and Our Minds. And of course, you can look on Twitter. Is it at Albert Einstein? At Albert Einstein on on, uh, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter and threads. All right. Well, keep watching. It's very funny. It's really, it's a terrific, uh, it's a terrific thing to follow. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for your good work. All right, Scott. uh, I really love a delightful guest, and that Mm -hmm. was certainly delightful. And I love Albert Einstein, anything. We'll be back in a second for predictions. Support for Pivot comes from Hidden Layer. It seems like everywhere you look, industries are turning to generative AI. We talk about it a lot on this show. Businesses can generate more ideas, answers, connections, solutions, and momentum. But at the same time, security teams are forced to slow down that progress so they can make sure AI adoption is safe and responsible. Hidden Layer's AI detection and response platform secures generative AI and large language models from malicious attacks, leaking of confidential information, and intellectual property theft. Hidden Layer helps you generate more by enabling seamless, secure generative AI. Here's how it works. AI detection and response protects businesses from potential attacks by monitoring and analyzing the inputs and outputs of their generative AI applications, blocking harmful transactions and alerting security teams in real time, allowing organizations to accelerate their AI adoption with speed. Customers in finance, technology, healthcare, and even the U.S. Department of Defense trust Hidden Layer to protect their AI today. Plus, Hidden Layer was named Most Innovative Startup at RSA, the most significant cybersecurity conference in the nation. With Hidden Layer, go from pause to possibilities. Generate more with Hidden Layer. Visit hiddenlayer.com slash pivot to learn more about Hidden Layer's AI detection and response solution. Okay, let's do predictions. Scott, let me hear your prediction. Uh, well, I made it. The writer strike is going to be over by the end mm-hmm. of um, in the next thirty days. As I'm well. jumping on that one with you. Go ahead. You're you're in as well. The UAW strike one. The former or the latter has reason to be solved. They've handled it well. Uh, Sinn Fein, whatever his name is, the guy who, Sean Fein. Sean Fein, the guy who lives leaves unattended packages on the tube. Oh wait, that was another guy. <laughs> oh Anyways, my god! I don't totally right inappropriate. There. Totally inappropriate. Totally inappropriate. Um, totally. Uh, Allegedly. Especially leave, living in the UK. Um, yeah. By the way, my youngest takes the tube to and from school, which is wonderful. And his favorite, my my favorite picture of my youngest son is uh, when he dressed up for Halloween as Einstein. Oh, yeah, It's, it's so cute. cute. Yeah, it's really cute. Uh, okay, so where were the where predictions? Look, the the UAW, they're at 40 bucks. The bid ask is 20 and 40 bucks. They'll end up probably in the high 20s. It, th- that's where they should be. Um, uh, so that's going to end. And then the folks, the folks who run the Writers Guild are in danger of losing their jobs and of the entire union collapsing. If they don't, if they don't, and come. SAG, you're including SAG in that. Yeah, they'll follow along. But uh, it, it, this is 
the, these unions, the people who actually work at the unions are probably realize that they have overplayed their hand and they're about to get kicked out of the game if they, uh, I just, all of a sudden, everyone, all at once, their incentives are aligning to solve this strike. So what's gone on 120 days isn't going to go on more than another 30. Yeah, I would agree. I think they don't like to hear this union people, but things do have their sell-by date. Like people do get, like it gets, the longer it goes, the worse and worse it is typically for the strikers tends to be. And we need to, we need to have an honest conversation. People have such a gad reflex when you say anything negative about uh, a specific union. 330 Starbucks have unionized and everyone's like, oh my God, it's a, it's a union resurgence. Not one not one of those stores that is unionized has resulted in a collective bargaining agreement. Or in some, it's all been a bunch of jazz hands. It hasn't no, resulted. They got to deliver. It hasn't resulted in anything positive for the workers. And let me let me really dig a hole for myself here. I have been yeah, on. Yeah, please, because I like unions. But go ahead. Go ahead. Well, we all like you. We all like their intent. They need help. We. we it's not enough. Because here's the thing, Kara. As someone who has sat on. I don't know, seven public company boards and several of them had unions. We unions are the unions are the perfect enemy for corporations because they give America and workers the illusion they're being well represented and they're not. These guys are disorganized, corrupt, and the majority of the people here don't have a lot of faith in them. And it, it, here's the bottom line, the root motivations, the objectives, the spirit, the soul of unions is right on. And guess what? They need help. And the way they need help is we have to have a base floor line minimum wage in this country of 25 bucks. And then hopefully unions can go get more than that. But right now, this construct is not working for the American working man or woman. All right. There you have it. And let me just say, ladies and gentlemen, Lauren Boebert. No, I'm kidding. I think. <laughs> Uh, Representative Bobert. I like her a lot more now, don't oh, you? I do. I told you that. I hate myself. Oh, I hate God. myself. I was like, what a saucy little minx she is. What a Seriously. World. She's got to stop lecturing us about like family values. She's got to stop that. That's got to end. It's gotta, that, that is irritating. Uh, people juxtaposed her, all her family values bullshit and her anti-drag bullshit and with her hand jobbery. And it was uh, it was delicious. It was fantastic. But anyway, we want to hear from you. Send us your questions about business tech or whatever's on your mind. Go to nymag.com slash pivot to submit a question for the show or call 855-51-PIVOT. Scott, that's the show. Another amazing show. I was at this wedding over the weekend and I, gave, I had 12 selfies. Oh, wait, wait. Is this the part of the show? Let's talk about how awesome no. we are. Go ahead. No, we are. I'm okay. going to do that because okay, literally ahead. people love our show. I, I, I love so, affirmation from strangers. Not because we're great. It's that people enjoy it. And I really appreciate all, all of people who come up to me. So what happened at the wedding? I, I just want to say what was really nice, someone came up to me and said, you're our friend in a That's really nice, nice way. Yep. And I thought that was beautiful. And I really liked it. It makes them laugh, makes them cry, makes them angry, whatever. You're our friend. I thought that was I thought was well said. We're your friend. We are your friend. But mm -hmm. but don't get creepy. Don't get creepy. So I shouldn't I should mention that my favorite bathhouse in San Francisco was the White Swallow. Oh my God. Actual place. Actual place. <laughs> was it? Yeah. Actual place in Soma. Am I still their friend? Am I still yes. their friend? <laughs> um, because there's there's a bar in San, in my neighborhood, the Mo Moby Dick. And then, you know, there you have it. Anyway, uh, 
Come come visit San Francisco and we'll take you for a drink. Threw you off your game. Not easy to throw Kara Swisher off her game. She's Lauren still... Bobert, we Scott and I will take you for a drink at the Moby Dick. Will she date my son when he's a senior in high school? That's all I want to know. I will vote for her. I'm a constituent now. Every 17-year-old boy lead, needs a little Bobert in her life. She does not lay a hand on my son. That would be ugly. She would be in lots of pieces all over Aspen. Anyway, uh, we'll be back on Friday for more. We are digressing once again, but we appreciate it. And we are your friends. Scott, please read us out. Today's show was produced by Lara Neiman, Zoe Marcus, and Taylor Griffin. Ernie Indertot engineered this episode. Thanks also to Drew Burroughs, Mil Severio, and Gaddy McBain. Make sure you're subscribed to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening to Pivot from New York Magazine and Vox Media. We'll be back later this week for another breakdown of all things tech and business. Kara, have a great rest of the week. Thank you. Support for the show comes from Atlassian. Whether you're exploring space, making pizza, or producing a podcast like this one here, chances are your team is marching into the AI-generated horizon. Atlassian Intelligence is unleashing a new era of teamwork. You can use Atlassian's AI-powered products for everything from brainstorming ideas to finding information to summarizing huge documents, all by using normal, everyday language. Atlassian AI-powered software like Jira and Confluence help teams accomplish what would otherwise be impossible alone. Because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. Learn how you can transform teamwork with the power of AI at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian.